Well, welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, this is only my second time in the new Frederick Hayek Auditorium. I hope that you enjoy it, uh, and I'm glad to see you all here. Uh, my name is Randall O'Toole, and I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and I also wrote a book, which is for sale out in the lobby, you might want to take a look at, called American Nightmare, How Government Undermines the Dream of Home Ownership. Uh, today, we're having a distinguished panel of people who will be introduced by uh, the editor of The Next American City, Diana Lynn. So thanks to the Cato Institute for co-hosting this event. Thanks to the panelists for being here and also to all of you for participating in this conversation. Uh, for those of you who don't know Next American City, we're a nonprofit organization based in Philadelphia with the mission of connecting cities and uh, informing the people working to improve them. We publish a series of long-form investigative stories every single week. It's called Forefront. Um, there's a brochure right outside as well uh, that you can pick up and learn more about that. We have a history of being provocative and progressive, looking for new solutions to age-old problems in our communities, often around issues of affordability, access to, infra uh, to opportunity, infrastructure, governance, culture, and many other topics. When Next American City started publishing its magazine in 2003, the housing market was, to say the least, very different from what it is right now. Uh, the renaissance of downtowns was just starting to pick up pace. Meanwhile, exponential growth at the fringes of the metropolitan, bound, of metropolitan boundaries was um, increasingly the dominant development pattern. Now, walkable urbanism, um, walkable urban landscapes are increasingly desirable. Meanwhile, the suburbs have become more racially diverse and have grown poorer at a faster rate than cities. Uh, at the same time, housing prices have plummeted and in many areas not recovered, leaving a landscape of foreclosures. What was most the reliable of assets, a house, has become, in a word, toxic. So in this new world, there needs to be new ideas, tools, and leadership to restore confidence, affordability, and value to housing. And today's panelists have some thoughts on how we might do that. Uh, Matt Iglesias is a columnist for Slate and previously an editor for The Atlantic, as well as a former fellow at the Center for American Progress. His recently published book is The Rent is Too Damn High. Um, the book is not available for sale outside, but is um, available for download online. Um, Ryan Avent, uh, to his right, is the economics correspondent for The Economist magazine and the primary contributor to the Free Exchange blog. His book is The Gated City, uh, likewise available for download. Um, Randall O'Toole is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute working on urban growth, public land, and transportation issues. He's the author of five books, uh, including The Best Laid Plans, Gridlock, Why We're Stuck in Traffic and What to Do About It, and as he mentioned most recently, The American Nightmare, How Government Undermines the Dream of Home Ownership. And Adam Gordon is a staff attorney at Fair Share Housing and a non-resident fellow at NYU's uh, Furman Center for Real Estate and Urban Policy. He's also a co-founder of Next American City. We collaborated with Cato to develop this panel of ideologically diverse authors to address the issue of affordable housing. Last year alone, 2.9 million properties were served a foreclosure notice. 
Ironically, our country doesn't lack affordable housing overall, but we lack it in many of our most productive cities like DC and New York, San Francisco and Boston. At the same time, the abundance of newly constructed affordable housing has driven the economies of places like Phoenix and Houston, but the sprawling nature of this development has caused great concern about its environmental, social, and economic consequences. In all the panelists' books, there's a sense of urgency that if we don't fix our housing crisis, the rest of the economy is at risk. To Matt and Ryan, a lack of affordable housing in our cities is a drag on our, on our whole economy. To Randall, the inability to afford a house means the end of the American dream and with it social mobility. But rather than summarize the panelists' ideas for them, I'm going to ask all of them to give sort of a five minute um, period of opening remarks about what's wrong with the current state of housing and more broadly development in our cities and what can be done to change it. Um, so with that, uh, Matt, will you speak first and then perhaps we can just go from uh, left to right. After uh, they speak, we'll have a bit of a moderated discussion and uh, follow that with a Q&A with the audience. Um, and after that, there's lunch upstairs. More on that soon. Thanks. Should I sit here? All right. <clears throat> Well, thank you, thank you, Diana. Um, it's it's really good to be be back at Cato. Uh, this is my first time here in the in the new auditorium. They seem to have they made it a little bigger, so it, it doesn't the room doesn't get quite as full. But you know, um, I, thank you all all for coming. Um, uh, you know, the, uh, the 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 title of my book on this subject uh, is "The Rent Is Too Damn High." It was obviously uh, stolen from Jimmy McMillan of the uh, the Rent Is Too Damn High party in in New York. Um, but the the basic pitch of the book is that you know rather than uh, Jimmy McMillan's uh, point in this is simply that he he wants stricter and, and better enforcement of, uh, of rent control laws in in New York City. Um, but the the point of, of my book is to try to say that you know we need to look not just at the affordability of a house is sort of the ratio between what it costs and what the person who's living there, uh, you know, has to spend. Uh, obviously, a very important concern on an individual level. Everyone wishes that the particular place they were living, you know, might be might be had for less money. Um, but from a social point of view, what's much more important is actually sort of the the abundance of housing, and it's the question of can we have a large quantity of people enjoying sort of excellent housing, uh, housing that's good in quality and good in location. Um, and the, the you know, starting point of sort of the inquiry that I was looking on is to look at population growth trends in the United States. Uh, and you see that you know, people are, are really moving to a, a certain number of Sunbelt cities. Uh, and you sometimes hear them described uh, in the press as, well, these are, these are the places that are really booming in America. Uh, Houston is booming. Phoenix is booming. Um, um, San Antonio. Uh, particularly during the sort of the, the days of, of the housing bubble and, and the greater economic uh, strength. Um, but still, if, if you look at those areas, you know, what they were booming in is population. People are moving there. Uh, in terms of, of economics and prosperity, none of those places are all that booming. Uh, wages are not rising. Uh, the sort of key businesses that drive the economy forward are, are not locating there. Um, and, and it's almost the equivalent of, you know, people just kind of, well, people are moving there essentially 
because they can afford the houses in those places. Then if you look at different kind of metro areas, which are booming in terms of incomes and wages uh, and, and desirability, you see uh, places on, on the California coast, uh, particularly uh, around the Bay Area, you see here in the Northeast Corridor, uh, particularly in some of the satellite cities around New York, the Boston area, the Washington, D.C. area. These are places where people have access to, to the best jobs um, and the highest incomes. But uh, population has not been growing in those places. Instead, what's happened is just that it's become more and more expensive to live in there. And you've had, you know, the familiar phenomenon of gentrification, where or previously low wage, uh, previously, uh, you know, affordable portions of cities become more and more expensive. Um, And, you know, uh, my my basic point is simply that this is a very um, socially costly process that even though... um, well, that, that, you know, when people are not able to move to the places where the highest wages and incomes are available, it, it contributes to a sort of downward drag on the economy as a whole. And that it's, it's not, it's become sort of fashionable sometimes among liberals to look at this sort of very sprawling sunbelt cities and say, well, you know, these are bad places or it's ugly or it's bad for the environment. Uh, and in a lot of ways, they are bad for the environment. And I personally agree that they, that they are a little bit ugly. Um, yet at the same time, they're, they're providing a very necessary commodity to people, which is to say a place to live. Um, people, people really need a house. Um, and that in the cities that uh, well that tend to be more left wing politically have a lot of virtues, have very highly educated populations, have a lot of high wage jobs, uh, have a more compact urban form that is much better for the environment. But at the same time, if you don't allow for people to come into those cities, you're really limiting the virtues uh, that, that exist in them. And the only way to get more people into a place like New York or a place like the Boston area or a place like Silicon Valley is to allow for more buildings to be built in them. Um, and, you know, among people in the know at this point, it, it's cliche to observe that there's severe restrictions. But a lot of people, I think, when, when they talk about these things, still to this day don't realize exactly how tightly curtailed uh, urban development is that... Um, here in, in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, if you, if you go to Georgetown and walk around the sort of nice little houses there, often on, on narrow lots, often with no parking garages, it's not obvious to people that it's actually illegal to build uh, housing that dense uh, across the majority of the city, that you need to provide much more, much more space than that. And that all across the sort of D.C. suburbs, you know, where you see very expensive single-family homes, the reason they're so expensive and the reason they're single-family homes is that you can't build anything other than single-family homes there, and only so many single-family homes uh, fit on a, on a given piece of land. Um, and, uh, you know, so the, the challenge that I always have to, to liberals, to people who are inclined to be, you know, suspicious of deregulation and, and of business and, and of, you know, rich developers is to say, well, you know, look, uh, there's nobody else who, who can build houses other than developers. That's, that's the line of business they're in. And if you want people to come and live in the kinds of cities that you want to celebrate, you know, you need to relax the rules and, and let them go build more stuff. Uh, conversely, you know, a, a challenge to the, to the right in America is that this seems to me to be a big sort of blind spot of conservative thinking, that part of, of fusionist politics is a is sort of a merger between free market ideas and the sort of cultural values of suburban America uh, in a way that has led to, I think, a, a kind of myopic focus on the idea that, like, someone is wasting money somewhere on a streetcar program and missing, like, the real boat of what's happening in urban America, which is that... Um, 
the highest value places are not being allowed to to grow and prosper in the way that they should, and that uh, overregulation is basically preventing the highest value American cities from becoming bigger and denser in a way that would be better for for the vast majority of people. Um, so I guess that's what I have. Turn it over. Um, thanks. So um, I think Matt and I share uh, a lot of the same views on the issue. We've, I think we've based our, our views on a lot of the same research that's been coming out. And, and so I'm, I'm glad that he, he said a lot of things that I was going to say. Um, uh, but I think that in general, my, my viewpoint is the same, that when we look at what's happened with housing costs over the past 20 to 30 years, it really comes down uh, to straightforward questions about supply and demand. Uh, and I think that's, that's due to a couple of different trends that have really played out over the last 20 to 30 years. On the demand side, uh, a lot of cities that struggled quite a bit in the 70s and 80s uh, began to solve their crime problems and budget problems, uh, and so it became more desirable from a consumption point of view. There's a lot of great things to do in New York, uh, provided that you, you're not going to get mugged around every corner. Uh, at the same time, a lot of these cities became uh, more desirable for uh, reasons of production. That they, you know, we, we, we talk about things like skill, uh, skills bias, technological change, uh, and the importance of uh, college education, the premium on higher education, higher skill levels. Um, what we don't hear about as much is that a lot of those benefits um, occur in clusters, that there are a lot of knowledge spillovers that are, occur between knowledge workers, uh, and that these things tend to take place in very productive cities, uh, well-educated cities like the Bay Area, like Boston and New York. Uh, and so that has made these areas more productive. Wages have gone up, and they become more desirable. And so the demand side really um, ha- has has been increasing for these places. At the same time, as Matt talks about, uh, supply has not responded, and I think that is is largely due, as he says, to uh, zoning restrictions that didn't change in response to to changing demand patterns. That in some cases have gotten more restrictive. And I think it's interesting if you go back 30 years and look at housing markets around the country. Uh, with with a few with just two or three exceptions, um, housing costs very closely tracked construction costs, um, and that is no longer the case. There is now, according to research by economists uh, like Ed Glazer, there's now a, a regulatory tax, a shadow tax, equivalent to about 30 to 50 percent of the price of a home, um, and that's primarily along the coast, but it's increasingly popping up uh, in places uh, like Phoenix, like Chicago, that w- that we think of as being belonging more to. Um, markets that are less less tightly regulated. Um, so if you if if you go to a place like San Francisco, it's yes, it's more expensive to build a high rise there. At the same time, the price is about double what it ought to be based on construction costs alone, and that's due um, to regulation. And and so I think that that that's really um, the key issue that we need to think about. And the question is, what do you do about all that? What do you do about the regulation? Because obviously, a lot of it exists for very sound, rational reasons. Uh, homeowners are concerned about quality of life. Uh, they're concerned in many cases about their schools, which are dependent on um, on local neighborhood conditions. They're concerned about traffic and things like this. Uh, and I, I think that what we're increasingly seeing in the community of people like Matt and I that, that talk about these things is that um, what really hasn't happened is an institutional development to try and accommodate um, some of these changing patterns. Uh, and then, in fact, uh, we, we need to focus on that and we need to, to, to make sure that we're not treading on private property rights um, in, in unfortunate ways. And I think the best analog for what we're talking about here is trade, actually, um, where if you look at how trade liberalization, international trade liberalization, progressed over the past half century, um, there was a very basic problem there, which is that tight, well-organized, small, concentrated industries wanted to block change, wanted to keep tariffs high. 
whereas uh, intellectuals said that, well, if you, if you reduce tariff barriers, it'll be good for everyone. Um, and so in order to, to sort of overcome uh, the opposition of these concentrated, well-organized, um, interested groups, uh, we needed institutional change. And so some of that change involved at the level at which decisions were made. Uh, and it also helped, I think, um, that the United States is a federal system. If, if Michigan were responsible for making its trade rules, it would have very high tariffs. Uh, but Michigan doesn't get to make its own trade rules. And so um, the outlook of the, of the government of the United States is more focused on the broader benefits of, of free trade. Uh, and there's an analog there to urban development, that people in the immediate proximity of dense developments are not going to be very happy about construction cranes and, and traffic and things like that. And if, if the government is set up so that local neighborhood groups, particularly when they're just uh, involved two or three sort of busybodies, uh, are able to veto any development plan that comes along, um, you're going to consistently see uh, projects with broad benefits uh, being blocked. And then I also think that, you know, the government should think about ways to sort of focus on enabling um, Kosian bargaining, what we say in economics, that, you know, if you have local neighbors who, who don't want to see a project built, but you have others that are going to benefit from it, there ought to be some deal that can be struck between them two to, to nonetheless make sure that projects get built. Uh, but in fact, we don't see that happening, and I think a lot of that is due to the way um, governments are set up. Uh, and again, trade provides uh, sort of an answer for this, this issue, uh, that if you have something like trade adjustment assistance, um, that sort of serves as uh, facilitating this bargaining between, between the two parties. You, we say in advance that if you're hurt by trade, you'll get this compensation. Um, a friend of mine, David Schleicher, who's a law professor at George Mason, has, has proposed this idea uh, that he calls uh, TILTS, or Tax uh, Increment, um, I can't remember what the LT stand for. <laughs> Very important. To something the, good. Yeah, something good. And essentially what, what happens there is when a new project is built, uh, you promise to use some of the increase in revenue that occurs from that project in tax revenue uh, to offset other taxes for neighbors that are impacted. And that essentially is just you're helping the market strike a deal there um, that they wouldn't otherwise um, be able to strike. But I, I, I certainly agree with Matt that it, it, for this audience in particular, the discussion we ought to be having is, is why are we not taking advantage of these huge profit opportunities where the cost of homes are so far above the cost to build them? Um, why is the market not solving this problem? Why are, are $100 bills being left on the sidewalk? Uh, and I think the, the, a lot of it comes down to attention to the problem. And, and so I think hopefully conversations like this will, will help uh, draw attention to it. Well, Diane asked everybody to not show a PowerPoint show, but as usual, I have to be different. <laughs> um, so if we can uh, get this working here, let's see. It strikes me that a lot of what people say about this issue is influenced by where they live and where they grew up. I grew up in Portland, Oregon before it was heavily regulated and was essentially regulated out of Portland, and now I live in a community of less than 200 people. And so I have kind of a different perspective than uh, people who have lived in much larger cities. Um, but I think that there's a, a lot of belief that home ownership and housing affordability it relates to personal income. And for example, if we look at home ownership rates around the world, we see that the countries with the highest home ownership rates are countries like Mexico and India and Italy and Greece, countries that we know are fairly wealthy, 
whereas poor countries like Germany and Switzerland have the lowest home ownership rates. Well, obviously that's not true. What's going on is that other government policies are much more influential on home ownership and on, on housing affordability in general than uh, personal incomes. And if we have government policies that seem to be good for uh, home ownership, it often turns out that they aren't. Many people are surprised to learn that in the late 19th century urban America, uh, home ownership rates among the working class were much higher than among the middle class. And so home ownership rates in this neighborhood uh, of working class Chicago uh, might have been as high as 30 or 35 percent, whereas in this middle class neighborhood of Chicago, they were probably under 10 percent. So again, it's not an income-related thing. Uh, it's related to something else much different. By 1969, across the country, home ownership rates had settled down to be about the same in most places, around 60 to 65 percent. And the price of a home, the median price of a home in cities across the country was almost everywhere about twice the median family income. So uh, whatever the income was, it was twice as much, which meant that in Los Angeles and Chicago, which had high, or, in, or San Francisco, which had higher incomes than Charlotte and, and Houston, housing was, was more expensive, but it was probably bigger homes, more luxurious homes. Uh, generally, though, the two-to-one ratio of uh, incomes to, or, or home prices to incomes held across the country. By 2006, this was no longer true. Uh, in many parts of the country, home prices were four, five, six, seven, uh, in a few places even ten times median family incomes. Uh, housing had become unaffordable. When housing is twice median family income, you can spend 25% of your income on a mortgage and pay it off in, in ten years. When it's three times uh, median family income, it takes 20 years to pay it off. When it's four or five times median family income, you can't pay it off in, in a 30-year mortgage. When it's six times median family income, you're talking about infinite amounts of time before you're able to pay off that mortgage. So we've got very unaffordable housing. And what's the difference between cities like Los Angeles, Miami, and Portland, which have unaffordable housing, and cities like Atlanta, Charlotte, and Houston? The difference basically is government. Government got in the way of housing uh, in the expensive cities, and they made housing expensive. Where government didn't get in the way of housing, housing remained affordable. Let me talk to you briefly about my former hometown of Portland. In the early 1990s, planners in Portland made a decision that they imposed on the entire region. That decision was that currently 65% of households in the Portland area lived in single-family homes. They wanted to reduce this almost to 40%. They wanted to increase multifamily housing to almost 60% of the, to more than 60% of the region. Well, almost to 60% of the region. And to do that, they had an urban growth boundary around the city of Portland. They made that boundary fairly strict. They made a few token additions to the boundary, but they put so many regulations on those additions that nobody has yet put in any developments. They rezoned dozens of neighborhoods for multifamily housing. Single-family homes were rezoned for multifamily, and it, the zoning was so strict that if your house burnt down, you weren't allowed to rebuild it. You had to replace it with apartments or whatever met the minimum density of the zone. Uh, and then... That wasn't enough, so they started subsidizing multifamily housing. And since then, Portland and its suburbs have sunk about $2 billion in subsidies to developers of multifamily housing. 
Now, if you're in a place that doesn't have a lot of land use regulation, you have an, what economists call an, an elastic supply of housing. That means the supply curve is essentially flat. No matter what happens to demand, the supply will be able to meet it and the price doesn't change. When you start restricting housing, you make that supply curve steeper. Economists call it inelastic. That means a small change in demand leads to a large change in price. And it works in both directions. A small increase in demand leads to a large increase in price. A small decrease in demand leads to a large decrease in price. And so, so we started seeing uh, housing bubbles in cities that had this kind of planning. Uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, Tampa, large housing bubbles. And these weren't the first ones. California started doing this kind of planning back in the 70s. And this was actually the third housing bubble that, that California had gone through. We compare that with cities that do not have a lot of planning, and we have virtually no housing bubbles. Housing prices did not significantly increase during the boom years of the 2000s, and they have not significantly decreased since the crash. Now, planners made housing less affordable, and in order to compensate, they, they decided to pass, in many places, what are called inclusionary zoning ordinances, or affordable housing mandates, requiring developers to provide some of their housing at less than market and often less than cost. And that actually made housing less affordable because, first of all, developers stopped building as many homes when they were required to do this. Second of all, they increased the price on the market rate homes that they were allowed to sell. And thirdly, uh, other home owners who were thinking of selling their homes realized that the, price of market, the market price of housing had gone up, so they increased the price of their second homes or their used homes as well. So the inclusionary zoning actually makes housing unaffordable. And this is a paper published by the Reason Foundation that shows why that's true. Now, my example of the free market at work is Houston. In Houston, they have no zoning. Counties in Texas are not even allowed to zone. So basically, you can do whatever you want. You can buy land. You can get a permit. You can build on that land. And you can move in within 120 days of when you've closed on the land. And housing is very affordable. Here's a house that you can buy for $150,000. It's brand new, three-bedroom, two-bath house. You can buy brand new homes in Houston, three-bedroom, two-bath homes, for as low as $110,000. Here's a house. It's two bedrooms, two baths. It's a used house, obviously. It's for sale for $59,000 right now. And it's typical of houses that you can buy uh, in the Houston area. Housing is very affordable despite the fact that Houston is the fastest-growing urban area in the United States. So Henry David Thoreau once said, uh, the government is excellent, but it never accomplished anything except by the alacrity with which it got out of the way. If we want affordable housing, government needs to get out of the way and let people have the kind of housing they want. Thank you very much. So I'm Adam Gordon, uh, and I'm an attorney. I'm a litigator on uh, actually trying to get rid of some of these exclusionary regulations in New Jersey, uh, and I haven't written a book. So I guess I'll tell you a little bit. Uh, given that you can't go and, go and read, read a book um, uh, about how the work that I do uh, came about and, and what kind of impacts it, it's had. Uh, the work that I do started in 1970 when an African-American community in the town of Mount Laurel, New Jersey, uh, which had actually been there uh, since the Revolutionary War. It was an important stop on the Underground Railroad. Uh, 
realized that a lot of the housing they were living in were, uh, were chicken coops, uh, converted chicken coops and so on, were dilapidated, and got the funding together uh, and the land together to build a garden apartment development. And they thought that this would all be pretty easy to do. Uh, they uh, invited the mayor of Mount Laurel Township to uh, come to Sunday morning services at Jacob's Chapel AME Church, uh, which is sort of the center of that community, the oldest black church in New Jersey, and to, to, to give his reaction to the proposal. And he said, our zoning doesn't allow garden apartments, and if you people can't afford to live in our town, then you'll just have to leave. Now, of course, they could afford to live there. In fact, they had the land and they had the financing to do it, but the regulations imposed by the township stopped them from doing that. So uh, they uh, brought a litigation against the township of Mount Laurel, went to the New Jersey Supreme Court, uh, and in 1975 the court ruled that such uh, exclusionary zoning uh, violated the limits on zoning in the New Jersey Constitution. And since then we've had um, a uh, requirement that every town has to at least uh, partly deregulate uh, their their zoning re regimes, and we have we have one of the worst uh, exclusionary zoning uh, conditions in, in, in the country. Uh, I was glad to see in this entire discussion and, and reading the various books that while we disagree on some details, and I hope we'll get into that later, of, of where to go, we're in sync on the really important thing, which is what the biggest problem is in these areas uh, in which Randall was just showing, the, the, the metro, metro areas in which we've had these artificial rise in housing prices, which is that the big problem is overregulation. Uh, and I, I, the, the discussion, what we just saw, I mean, it shows that when you constrain uh, development and when you come up with a Byzantine and costly per permitting process, you increase housing prices and you decrease supply. That's in somewhere like New Jersey and somewhere like, somewhere like Washington, somewhere like San Francisco, somewhere like Boston. That is the biggest problem for housing affordability. And I, and I think that's something that we all agree on and glad to see it. In New Jersey, after the Mount Laurel cases, uh, at least initially, we tackle these issues pretty well. There's a study out by someone named Stu Meck uh, for the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy that looked at a somewhat more normal decade uh, in, in, in housing, 1990 to 2000. And what he found is he, he compared... Uh, regimes that had sort of growth management, just what we just saw, with regimes that did not have growth management and found that New Jersey, despite its history and basic structure of being a highly regulated state, actually performed more like the unregulated states. Uh, actually, in the entire decade of the 1990s in New Jersey, housing prices increased by 4.2%, a nominal rate, not a, not a real rate. So it was actually really a real, real flat or decrease. Um, and uh, New Jersey did that despite having this history of excessive growth management and exclusionary zoning because of these requirements uh, for deregulation, which were extremely successful. Uh, and we know, so we know that there's ways of doing this, of addressing these problems, even in places like New Jersey and California and Washington uh, that have really uh, excessive regulations. And the question is, why isn't it being done? And I'll talk about what problems we're, we're having in New Jersey right now. And our problem is named Governor Chris Christie, who I think is the last New Jerseyan uh, to, speak, to speak at this institution before me. And I want to start with uh, describing that with a, a recent exchange on a radio show. A caller from a wealthy, highly de desirable suburb 20 miles outside of New York calls in and says, we have a lot of developments in our town that shouldn't have been done. We don't really need them, and nobody in our town wants this development. And Christie's nodding, you know, saying yes, yes, and, he's, and, and his response to it is that he says, 
There's a lot of foreclosed homes right now that need to be fixed up, and we don't actually need more new homes in New Jersey. And he's saying this in the context of someone who's fighting a private developer investing private capital to build new housing in that town. So you have Governor Chris Christie saying that he knows better than this developer as to whether there's a demand for housing in that town. He knows that we should be using foreclosed homes instead of uh, this developer who's investing millions of dollars of, of private capital into trying to build this development. And I guess my question is, why is this seem as acceptable? I mean, I think if somebody like Governor Christie, who was on the national spotlight uh, in, in, I guess, uh, he, he, I think, used the words conservative and libertarian somewhat interchangeably here, which I understand led to, led to some controversy, but, uh, you know, in, in, in conservative circles... Uh, you know, if he were to talk the same way about airline deregulation or about Dodd-Frank or so on, he would be pilloried. But somehow, he's allowed to, uh, to, to talk this way about the housing market, and that's okay. That's not a problem. He can still do that and be a potential vice presidential candidate. And, I, and my question is, why is that? Why, why, why is there an exception for the housing market, which is arguably you know, our most regulated market, uh, in, at least in these metropolitan areas, why is it okay to support gross overregulation to say that he knows better than the market uh, and still be a, a, a serious uh, uh, national conservative figure? Um, and my supposition is that there's something rather pernicious going on here. It's something that I see, you know, as, as somebody who, who identifies as, as more of a progressive in, in, in my own community, which is that, you know, we have limousine liberals, and I would say that Chris Christie is a limousine libertarian. Uh, that, you know, what he, what he, what he, it's... It's okay to promote these free market ideals, but when it really hits your backyard, when, you know, Morris County, one of the wealthiest counties in the U.S., highly desirable for development, highly restrictive, where Governor Christie lives, when towns in that county say, well, we don't want the free market to, uh, uh, to apply here, it's okay for the free market to, for it to be a free market-free zone and to uh, impose onerous regulations. And I guess one of the things that I really hope comes out of this conversation and this baseline agreement I identified on this being the biggest problem with housing affordability in these markets is I really don't think it should be. I think it should be as unacceptable for a, a national figure like Governor Christie uh, to say that the housing market should not operate in a free market fashion as it would be if he said the same thing about finance or airline reg regulation. And I think that if we had that ethos, uh, that this is something that is not a, a free market free zone and that there's important market principles, uh, that that would go uh, a long way towards uh, changing the nature of these conversations. Thanks. Great. Um, so I'm going to just jump in. We have about 20 minutes or so to have a little bit of a moderated conversation, and then we'll open it up to um, the public. Um, and I'm going to, you know, I'm not an economist or working in this field as a practitioner, so I'm sort of coming to this as a little bit of a, as a skeptic and, um, you know, uh, wanting to address um, some questions that I had reading in um, these books. I, I'll start off with Randall. Um, at some point in your book, you say, those who oppose sprawl must realize there's a trade-off between low-density suburbs and affordable housing. And it seems to me that you um, are suggesting that it's really a choice between affordable housing. If you want affordable housing, we need to have sort of low-density suburbs. And I'm wondering if I'm getting that um, correct in the first place. And then also I'm hoping if the, the other panelists can respond. Um, it seems that Matt and Ryan are suggesting that, um, in fact, we can get more affordable housing by increasing um, the density of our suburbs, of our cities. Um, and that's another approach to it. So, 
Well, survey after survey shows that what most Americans want, and in fact, most people around the world want, is to live in a single family home with a yard. And when you start restricting low density and start encouraging high density, you're reducing the number of people who can have a single family home in a yard, which means you're increasing the number of people who are unhappy with the way they're living. And you're going to drive up the price of that, uh, the, the few low density single family homes that are left. That's gonna make uh, people even more unhappy. Uh, and so there is definitely a trade-off between, between the kind of affordable housing people want and restrictions on low-density housing because people do want that low-density housing. Now, not everybody does, and those people who want to have high density will find that there's plenty of high-density housing in a free market uh, city, but uh, uh, when you start trying to impose high-density housing, do things like Portland did with putting a target on reducing the percentage of people living in single-family homes to 40% instead of 65%, you're going to simply make housing unaffordable for a lot of people. Uh, Can I? It's, if it's not imposed. I mean, the example that you are giving, Adam, of um, this particular development, it's not like anyone was imposing the um, affordable housing. It, it was actually the market that was demanding it. I mean, in that case, do you see that making the sort of that suburban area, the housing more... Um, unaffordable there. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, one, of the, one of the challenges with talking about density is, is that there's, there's a real spectrum. I mean, so I live in a suburban house with a yard, a single family house, freestanding, detached. Quite happy with it. Wouldn't want people to, to take it away. Uh, it's on about an eighth of an acre. That form of development, uh, you know, which would be included in the, in, in the, in the surveys that, that Randall was talking about, is also illegal in most places now. And so, you know, it, it's, I think a lot of, there's, there's a gradation here, which is about uh, most places, at least in, in New Jersey, uh, left to the druthers, only allow, you know, a house for every three acres or something like that. And, and that, and there's a limited, limited segment of the market that really wants that. And there's also a, um, uh, you know, and there's also people who forced, if, if there isn't supply in other areas, they'll probably take that as a substitute for what they really want. Uh, but I think that there's different people want different things, and there's a whole spectrum all the way from high-rise apartments to townhouses to the eighth of an acre lot that we live on to uh, a three-acre lot. And, the, you know, the, the, there should be ways of providing uh, all of those things. Uh, but uh, a lot of places that have all, quote-unquote, single-family detached zoning aren't even meeting even close to the, the range of market demand uh, for different kinds uh, and densities of single-family detached zoning. Well, I agree with that, but we have to recognize that three of our speakers here live in the corner of America that has the highest density and some of the most regulations, and, uh, and there perhaps is a market for higher density than those regulations would allow. But in most of America, the vast majority of land in this country uh, the densities are low, the desire for living is, for low density is, is high, and uh, the rules are very flexible. And this is something that I think people who are from New the Northeast don't see. That the rules in Kansas and Texas and Oklahoma and, and Wyoming are very flexible. They might have a five unit per acre or five acre minimum lot size for some areas of land. But if a de developer comes in and says, I want to put in 40 units per acre or eight units per acre or whatever, uh, it gets changed very fast. And that's something that, that uh, we don't often understand. 
that's what makes housing affordable is that even if you have some rules, the rules are flexible and, uh, and they will be changed in response to demand. But can I, say, I, I think that what Randall's alighting sort of the, the, the main point here, which is that, that that's a very accurate characterization of the majority of the land in the United States. But if you look at the majority of the places where there's a housing affordability problem, you know, if you, if you look on, on your chart, I, I sometimes feel what, when I've read uh, th things he's written that he's, he's writing from, from a, a strange mirror universe. Um, I, I now understand that it's, it's specifically the strange mirror universe of Portland, um, where it, 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 it may well be true true that in the Portland area that the development boundary and, and sort of restrictions on expansive single-family development is the main barrier to affordable construction. But the majority of the high-cost territory in the United States is not like that, that the, the constraint on single-family development is actual physical space. Um, there is not a ton of vacant land within a convenient commuting distance of Manhattan. But what you do have is a ton of places the least affordable parts of California, the least affordable parts of the New York area, the least affordable parts of the Boston area, these are places where the restriction is against building uh, multifamily housing, against building denser. It's, of course, true when you ask people in a survey, well, you know, would you like to occupy more land or less land? People say more, but, but people make trade-offs. I mean, I, I, uh, I live in an apartment building here. Uh, one of its key virtues is that, I, you know, I can walk to my office. Um, if I could have a much bigger house in the exact same place for the exact same amount of money uh, that would be uh, ideal um, but you know but I mean I, I can't uh, so what we have is denser housing where, where the land is scarcer and the land is more valuable uh, but in Silicon Valley for example where land is very scarce it's a there's a oceans and stuff uh, blocking you from sprawling out uh, you know you should be building up uh, but you're not because you're not allowed to um, I think it's fantastic that in Kansas City area housing is very cheap because there's plenty of land and people just go and and you know that's fantastic and, and thumbs up for Kansas City but if we're trying to address the problems I mean it's true most of the country is not in the Northeast or California um, but most of the housing affordability problem is in those places and and it's a it's there, it's a lack of density that's the issue. Well, actually, that's not true. In California, because of planning rules, 95% of the people in the state are confined to 5% of the state. In the San Francisco Bay Area, which includes San Jose and Silicon Valley, 17% uh, of the land is available for development, and the other 83% of the land is off limits to development. Uh, and so there are restrictions. It's not just the Pacific Ocean. There are restrictions on development. Every county in the area has its own urban growth boundary, just like Portland's. And unlike Portland's, none of them have expanded their urban growth boundaries since they were drawn in the 1970s, which means that uh, there is no room to grow. They have filled up their space. People don't want to grow up. They want to grow out, and they can't. And so what happens is jobs move elsewhere, and people move elsewhere, and those regions are growing very slowly. So uh, it, to me, it is government restrictions. It's not a lack of land. California is a big state. New York's a big state. There's plenty of land for development if uh, the restrictions will be taken off. You can't I, commute I, I, from Rochester. I, 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 uh, I, it's kind of a funny discussion, isn't it? I, I, government restrictions, yes, they are the problem. Uh, and uh, they're the problem in different kinds of places. And they have the biggest effect uh, in places where a lot of people want to live. And I think that's what we're talking about. Um, from my perspective, I think it's useful to be agnostic about what kind of development you end up with. If a private developer wants to pour uh, millions of dollars into a development because he's confident that he can sell it for a premium, um, 
we ought to say that developer probably knows what he's doing. We should let him do that. Uh, and you know, if 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 he's wrong, he'll fall on his face. And lots of other people will say, well, that was a bad idea. We'll go back to building uh, suburbs or whatever. Um, so I, I think it's it's fine to be agnostic about this. Um, I, I think uh, the. Economic research says that it's not fundamentally about land issues. And I, I think this is actually pretty easy to see um, when you sort of look around uh, some of these cities that we're talking about. And I'll give you an example. Uh, about a month ago, I was um, visiting Google in Mountain View. And um, Google is, uh, uh, you know, literally and figuratively put uh, Mountain View on the map. Um, and it's, it's incredibly important to this community, employs uh, thousands of people there. Uh, and Google had a very simple request for the city of Mountain View. It, it controls uh, a, a large number uh, of buildings in this sort of North Bay Shore area of land. And it said, you know what, a lot of our employees uh, uh, enjoy living in, in walkable areas. A lot of them live in San Francisco. We pay them a premium so that they can afford the commute. We end up uh, paying for a shuttle to have a lot of them down here. It'd actually be nice for us, be nice for the environment, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, if we could take this land that we own and invest our money in it and build uh, multi-family housing uh, for these young people. You know, a lot of them don't have kids. They just want, you know, a convenient place to live, close to work, where they can walk the stuff. And the city of Mountain View said no, um, basically because they just don't like to build things. I've, I've tried very hard to figure out whether or not there's more to it. it. Traffic wasn't really an issue because this part of, of Mountain View is sort of on the other side of the highway from most of the residential housing. It was, it's really sort of isolated from most of the other residents. They just really don't like um, building. And so that simple regulation shut down this plan that Google uh, wanted to put in place because it was trying to satisfy uh, certain needs. And so I think this is, if you go and you talk to companies around Silicon Valley, they'll say this is a huge issue. It's a huge issue for their commercial real estate as well as a residential real estate. Um, and it's a major reason why rents in the Bay Area are now rising at something like 14% a year, uh, well above salaries. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's great that cities like Raleigh, North Carolina, where I'm from, um, make a lot of suburban single-family homes available to people. Uh, that's, that's totally fine. People have wonderful quality of life doing that. Um, but that's fundamentally not what everyone wants. Uh, and if private developers want to sell a different kind of housing to people who want to buy it, and government regulations are preventing that, uh, we and the people in this room want to be upset about that. Um, so you say that uh, suburban development is fine, but um, I think in both um, Ryan and Matt's books, there's um, a little bit of um, concern that suburbanization in and of itself is a problem for the American economy. Um, in Matt's book, you write, over the long run, quasi-forced suburbanization disadvantages the majority of people, including suburbanites, by needlessly driving costs up and economic opportunity down. So I wonder if you both could kind of address some of the evidence that perhaps suburbanization as a um, sort of form of development might be a problem for the economy, or sort of some of the rationale for that uh, sentence. Sure. You know, I mean, what I was trying to write about is not not the existence of suburban housing, but the fact that we do not allow housing that's already been built in a suburban form to sort of further urbanize. That uh, when when the automobile was invented, it's an extremely useful technology. Obviously, we 
redid how we built things to take advantage of it, there were also many fewer people living in the United States at that time. So what constituted, you know, uh, a short distance away from the central city, um, you know, was very small. So you, you build some suburbs there, and then that's great. And then more people are born, more immigrants come, more people want to live in the New York area. So you say, well, you know, we gotta, we got to go a little bit further. We've got to go a little bit further. We've got to go a little bit further. Um, as you keep going further and further away from the central city, you're losing uh, some of the advantages of those initial suburbs, which was that not only do you have more space than you would have in a city, but you have a great deal of proximity to the central city. Um, so the natural thing to do is to do sort of two kinds of expansion. One is that, yes, as more people are coming into the area, you know, you might go further and further out. But in order so that you're not constantly pushing further out until people are commuting for incredibly long distances, some of the initial things that were developed as lower density ought to come up as, as higher density. And that's what we saw in the, in the classic pattern. Uh, you know, Manhattan did not look like Manhattan forever. Uh, once upon a time, those were, those were farms up there. And then there used to be like kind of big sort of detached mansions. If you go to the Frick Gallery, you, you can see one of the, the last sort of old school ones. But over time, it became, you know, more and more desirable to sort of crowd some more people in there. It's not to say that you crowded more people in there instead of further expanding the city. But, you know, you do you do a little bit of both. Uh, but at this point, you know, we've really largely stopped that. That's true of... Um, you know, suburban jurisdictions in New York where people might say, in New Jersey rather, or, or further upstate where people might say, you know, let's get, maybe maybe even it's still suburban, but we're going to have smaller lots, or we need some garden apartments here, or having invested billions of dollars in a train tunnel, you know, we should we should have some houses near the station. Um, and then you also see it in just the, the lower density parts of the, of the urban form that, you know, you've probably uh, read a million times in the newspaper that lots of people live in Brooklyn these days. Um, but Actually, the population of Brooklyn is not going up that much. Uh, instead, just richer people are moving into Brooklyn uh, because even though there is a fair amount of new development there, there's not as much uh, as there would be in a, in a free market paradigm. Um, you know, and I think it's, it's still true, the United States is not that densely populated a country. Uh, there's plenty of space for people to have yards if that's a high priority for them. But even the, the people who want those kind of yards uh, suffer for the fact that places where there's a ton of demand to live are not allowed to grow denser. And it means that your yard winds up being farther and farther and farther away from your job than it, than it needs, needs to be. Um, yeah, I, you know, I don't have a, a problem with, with suburbia per se. I mean, we can have a conversation about whether subsidies to things like mortgage finance lead to sort of the optimal uh, amount of suburbia in the country. But I, in my book, I think the, the argument I'm trying to make is essentially that um, it, it, a lot of places that tend to be more suburban in character, uh, as Randall rightly points out, build a lot more housing. Um, and the disparity in supply growth between those kinds of places and other places uh, leads to an enormous disparity in housing costs. And, and the, that leads to um, suboptimal migration around the country. Now, if people uh, really prefer to live in Houston rather than um, I, you know, San Francisco, that's, I, I think that, that's great and they should move. If, if people would you know, love the job that they have in San Francisco, uh, and simply can't afford to stay there because the median value of a home in San Francisco is six times that in Houston, which is roughly the case. Um, and so in, by leaving, uh, they're forced to take a job that's less productive. They're forced into a commute that uh, involves uh, more driving uh, than they prefer, that, that leads to higher levels of carbon emissions. Um, that, that's, that's a problem. Essentially, we're talking about 
a regulatory burden um, that's having a big economic and environmental impact on the country. And so, you know, I, I don't have a problem with suburbia. I have a problem with regulations that force people um, to make uh, consumption decisions that they, you know, they prefer not to make uh, under a freer environment uh, and that have negative sort of spillover effects for the country as a whole. I, I, I think this is very, I, I, first, I don't think we should frame this as an either-or thing. I mean, I think that the balance of the market demand varies varies hugely in different places. I mean, in New Jersey, it happens to be right now, if, you know, most uh, developers seem to think that the market demand really is more and more for redevelopment and tending to be, you know, more developed suburban areas uh, that are near existing job centers. Uh, and, you know, and they're being stymied on getting, uh, you know, appropriate zoning and permitting for that. So, uh, but I, you know, suspect there's many metro areas in which that's a tiny fraction of the demand and the demand is much more for uh, traditional uh, suburban development. And, you know, the, the point is that we need uh, a system, we need, we, we, we need a regulatory system that allows uh, demand to be met in different, different ways in different places as it arises. Um, one of those you know, interesting examples of how um, regulations are different in different places is New Jersey, where, um, correct me if I'm wrong, there, um, due to the Mount Laurel case, there is um, some sort of requirement that these counties ha provide the opportunity for affordable housing. And um, you know, that can be achieved by either developing the housing or actually sort of fighting um, the exclusionary zoning of certain counties. Um, you know, in Matt's book, he mentions that there's basically two ways of creating affordable housing. You can make, um, you know, existing housing less desirable, which, you know, some of the sort of um, second tier cities have, that's how they have affordable housing, or you can increase supply um, in these very desirable places. There's sort of, I guess, a third way, which is to require affordable housing. Um, do you think that that's um, a feasible thing for you know, various different um, communities in places where, you know, um, should we be pushing for uh, these kinds of requirements in um, some of these more desirable metros? Do you mean inclusionary zoning that requires deed-restricted affordable housing, what Randall was talking about? I guess so, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think that uh, there are a lot of different kinds of inclusionary zoning, and I'd say that the answer is it depends. There is inclusionary zoning that is purely used as an exclusionary mechanism, and I think that that tends to be typified by, you know, I, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I, I saw some communities in New Jersey who tried to put inclusionary zoning on one-acre lots. Well, this is a crazy idea, obviously. Uh, New Jersey also has, you know, I think back to what Ryan was saying before about, you know, Kosian bargains, which I think we should, on one hand, I think is a helpful suggestion. On the other hand, I think we should be very sensitive to how the rights are initially allocated, and I think that the rights are, are initially allocated in very poor ways right now in many places. Um, but, um, you know, a lot of what New Jersey has done uh, and, and what has pragmatically led to the statistics that I cited in which we actually have, despite starting from a very exclusionary regime, um, you know, when the system uh, was working well and you know, the whole history of different versions of it and so on, you know, actually we, we stopped the housing price increases. And uh, uh, what we had was basically a sort of a system in which you got quite significant density increases. And as part of the deal for that, you had to provide, uh, you know, a certain amount of deed-restricted housing. And I, and I believe that that, uh, in the particular context of New Jersey at the time, is was a good system, probably continue to be a good system in New Jersey because, uh, 
you know, if you're not going to, um, first, I think it's important that it was coupled with significant density increases. Uh, and, and second, uh, so that there was, you know, a significant added value that helped compensate for that. And I think, the, you know, the second, the reality is that it would be great if we could just uh, uh, have a large-scale re- reduction in regulations, you know, in, in doing redevelopment and new development in, in many places. I mean, the reality of where we end up, as actually another Cato fellow, Rick Hills, has, has I think, written quite well about recently, is that, you know, this stuff is so politically difficult uh, in these places that you have to come up with, so, a lot of times, creative second-best solutions. And I, I like... Uh, what he's been writing about, which is the zoning budget concept, which is actually, uh, as he points out, quite similar to what New Jersey did and what worked. Um, but, you know, you're not going to get these markets to clear. And if you're not going to get these markets to clear, then I think there is uh, some uh, uh, significant justification for, you're not actually going to get the housing down to the point where it's actually affordable. And if it's, I think if it's coupled with uh, density increases that in that case there actually is a case for inclusionary zoning. I, I don't think that in Houston I would be supportive of inclusionary zoning. Earlier this year we built in D.C. the, the first uh, apartment under the, the new city's uh, inclusionary zoning statute um, and they're finding that all the market rate units have sold but the, the affordable units have not sold because the only people who qualify under the income rules don't qualify for mortgages. And so it's this incredible tragedy where the developer has borne hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash, in costs, but literally nobody is deriving any benefit from it. Um, which, you know, so obviously that's, that's a poorly, poorly designed program. But, I mean, it's, it's a reminder that, you know, in terms of ways to, like, help a finite quantity of low-income people, this is in some ways like a very clumsy one. If we had just said the, to the guy, you know, build whatever you want here, and then you're going to pay property taxes, and then we're going to just give money to people, like, people would have money, people would have more houses, the developer would be rich, like, everyone would be better off. So I have some doubts. Well, I think that the idea that we can require affordable housing is like uh, the idea that we can pass a law saying that the value of pi is 3.00 instead of 3.14, whatever it is. Uh, You can't require affordable housing. What you can do is put more restrictions on the housing market, which ultimately will make housing less affordable. And that's what inclusionary zoning does. It creates a few units of supposedly affordable housing at the expense of making the rest of the housing market less affordable for everyone. Uh, And that's uh, something that uh, I think people need to recognize when they start talking about these things. I'm glad that everybody here seems to agree that we need less rules on on, uh, housing. Uh, and uh, we disagree on what will happen if we have those fewer rules, and that's not a problem. I'm agnostic as to what should happen. I don't care what does happen. Uh, But I think we have to recognize that when we're in regimes that have lots of rules, uh, the the second best solution may be far from the best solution. Florida repealed its growth management law last year. California repealed its tax increment finance law uh, last year. I think it's easily possible that we can repeal a lot of these laws and make housing a lot more affordable uh, and make land use regulation a lot less restrictive. I think if that's going to happen, I think first people like Chris Christie have to be in a very different place. And the fact that he and I think a lot of people like him in other places see political advantage in 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 sort of catering to these these uh, 
people who, who, who assert, and go back, back to the idea of where the rights are, who assert that essentially neighbors should have veto power over the, the property rights of the people next door, uh, I think it's very troubling. And, and um, you know, I, it's, it, I, we're, I think we're quite far from, from that in many places. And I think that there's, there is value in, uh, in making progress uh, in, in if you can't uh, get, you know, all these places to be, to be like Houston. Diana, can I just jump in and make two quick points? I mean, I, the first is is that it, there isn't one set of restrictions that, that's really impacting supply here. There's not one state law in California that, that sort of makes it difficult to build in these places. There's layer upon layer of barriers. And, uh, you know, we see something like historical preservation rules uh, that have been sort of abused and, and beaten all out of recognition. Eventually, everything in lower Manhattan will, will be in a historical area if it isn't already. And, and that makes it incredibly difficult to get things built. Um, there are environmental rules. There are, uh, in a place like D.C., where not all development is by right, there's this, uh, uh, it's very easy for local neighbors simply to apply sort of uh, pressure on, on, on their elected officials to kind of, in an ad hoc fashion, block different developments. So uh, it's, it's not like we, you know, I, I agree that, um, that repealing one law isn't going to make a difference, uh, but I, I think that makes it all the more important to really focus attention on on the issue. I guess the other quick thing I'd say is that, you know, there, there's value in proximity. Ultimately, that's what we're talking about here. Um, and that's the reason why, despite the fact that the United States is a massive country, we all tend to clump together. And part of that value is in social mobility. And if you look at, 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 big, uh, at big cities, uh, they have historically been great engines of social mobility. Um, and they become much less so when they become very expensive. Um, and, and so I think that you know, for that reason, there may always be a need to sort of provide some subsidy uh, to low-income people who want to live in these areas. The broader point is that it's going to be much, much cheaper to do that if you're addressing the supply problem. If you're, if you, if you take care of that big side uh, of the problem, um, then you know the, the amount necessary to make a meaningful dent and sort of subsidies to people who really need it is is going to be much smaller. Okay, I have a bunch of more questions, but I want to open it up to the public. Um, so we'll take a few questions and wrap up around 1.30. I have a few sort of um, requests. Uh, please wait to be called on and wait for the microphone since there are people who will be watching online and they can hear you. Um, and also state your name and affiliation. So we have, go ahead. Thank you. Um, Annabelle Fisher, I have a confession to make. I'm a renter. Now, you know, what I don't hear in any of this discussion, I mean, this is kind of a very uh, skitzy uh, discussion. I really like what Mr. O'Toole says, but first of all, please define affordable housing. There are, secondly, what's wrong with renting? It's cheaper, and everyone's pushing home ownership urban, suburban. I've lived in Seattle. It has really developed. I know Mr. O'Toole likes to live out in the country. That's fine. Developers have their proffers when they develop and they make money and then they roll over. But I don't hear any of you defining affordable housing from the federal, state, and local level. And also when you talk about regulations, locals, you know, for development, if you didn't have the regulations, and I don't think this is a left or right issue, if you didn't have any kind of regulation at the local, state, and I guess the federal level, 
would you have a free-for-all when it comes to development? And what kind of development would you have? And yes, each coast is different. Thank you. Well, I can address those questions. I'm not pushing home ownership. I'm using home ownership as a symptom of housing affordability. As I said, in, in the 1960s, uh, throughout the country, uh, homeowner housing cost about twice median family incomes. Median housing costs twice median family incomes. That to me means whether you decide to rent or own, housing will be affordable to you. Uh, and if, uh, uh, if housing prices for, for home buyers get to be much more than twice median family income, then probably prices for renters are going up as well. So I'm using that as a symptom. And I think if we got rid of all the rules, we would have a system like in Houston. In Houston, developers build a development. They include multifamily housing. They include single-family housing. They include commercial housing, often all in the same development to meet market demand. And they put covenants on the development to require that this area, for example, only be single-family or this area be mixed-use or whatever. And those requirements are flexible, and they can be changed by the homeowners associations in the future. So uh, you have control, but the controls are very local. They're developed by the home builders, the, the, excuse me, the develop developers, uh, but they can be modified by the, the home buyers through the homeowner associations over time. That, that way, the government can't step in and say, we've decided we want to take your neighborhood of single-family homes and turn it into apartments. We've decided to take your apartments and turn it into industry or something like that. Uh, it becomes a, a very locally controlled system. And, and in fact, most housing in America is built with that kind of protective covenants today, which is often layered on top of zoning. I define affordable housing as when housing, the median family homes cost about twice as much as median incomes, median family incomes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, it's, that's a reasonable definition. I think you, what you're sort of interested in saying is, can the can a median can the median income, uh, either uh, for the country as a whole or in a particular metro area, buy sort of what we consider to be a reasonable level of housing? Um, and you know, I, maybe at some point we'll need to have that debate about you know how close are we to what what affordable actually is. I think what's clear is in a lot of markets around the country, especially in some of the economically strongest ones. We're just really a long way away from that. I mean, when when the median uh, uh, value of a home in San Francisco is six times that uh, of the median income, uh, you know, I may not be able to say exactly what affordable is, but that's not it. Um, and um, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I I think I think it would also be worth trying to update some of our ideas about affordability to include uh, the transportation cost element of it. That if you if you look at some studies, for example, in the Chicago area, which is obviously a very very large city, but but also in the more spacious Midwest, that you you often see that um, uh, further away from from the city, the the house prices look affordable. But when you look at sort of what what the people who live in them are spending on gasoline and so on and so forth, it turns out to be um, you know more expensive than it appears. And some of the rules around the way mortgages are calculated and so on and so forth encourages people to kind of, um, you know, like, uh, exactly, drive, drive to you, qualify. It's called it. And they wind up, you know, it's a bit of an illusion of affordability. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, in, in addition to in monetary terms, I mean, there's just a time cost that is of value to people. But I, I think renting, uh, renting is... is it's very important. I mean, absolutely, you should. Uh, we shouldn't have any sort of systematic preference. I don't think for for home ownership, uh, and I don't think 
uh, I don't think we're also just talking about new construction. If you look at, at, at the Washington area uh, in the city, there are these, these massive row homes that are beautiful and that, um, you know, uh, 50, 100 years ago would have been home to, to quite large families. And uh, those families can't afford those kinds of houses anymore, and developers would like to break them up into smaller units that can then be sold. But if we have this still illusion that, that there will be uh, households with, with six children that opt to live in these places, uh, and that's just not going to happen. So it's not just about making sure we can get new construction. It's about if you own a property, can you do things to satisfy market demand for different kinds of things, for English basement apartments, for um, you know, outbuildings that, that, that could well serve as, as nice and, and affordable apartments? So. I, I, think, I think people should be able to choose homeownership or rental, whatever makes sense for them. Uh, I think affordable, you know, it's, I, I think I agree with the need to talk about transportation as well, but you know, common definition is you pay... 30% or less of your income every month for housing. And that is something that is very hard to do. I mean, it's linked to the measure that Randall's using, but you know, it's, it's, I mean, that's something that is very hard to do in these markets like, like Washington and San Francisco for a very wide range of people, um, including poor working class, middle class. I mean, whereas if you're in Houston, you know, almost nobody who's middle class and even most many people who are working class pay 30%, you know, pay 30% or less of their income for, for housing. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a, that's something that HUD uses. Yeah. Great. And one more thing about the, about the free for all regulations. I, I actually, you know, I think that there there are some appropriate regulations of land use. I think that there are some appropriate environmental regulations. I actually am a little bit skeptical of. You know, covenants still beg the question of government enforcement, and I think if we get too far on the side of we're going to forever enforce covenants that were written a hundred years ago or, or something like that, there's issues with that. Um, I just think, I mean, I, I think that you know why we're all sort of focused on the um, on, on what's going on in places like here in San Francisco and so on is I think we all agree that while we probably disagree about what is reasonable and environmental regulation and and and, dis and 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 things like that we all agree that whatever we think we are so far beyond that and we are and, and that's what's driving how much how much of the housing is not affordable and I think there's just you know we often get caught up in these in these details when the big picture is that we are way far away in these, these areas and we're and, we, and the regulations are just out of control uh, we've got a question up there in the back Hi there, uh, Tim Lee with the Cato Institute. Um, so I noticed that there's sort of, uh, you know, there's there's Randall who, like me, sort of comes from a, a libertarian background, and then we have uh, the other three who uh, come from, I guess you would call it more of like a left-wing libertarian uh, kind of viewpoint on this. And so far, I don't think I've heard a single policy disagreement um, among you folks. Maybe a little bit about inclusionary zoning, and yet you guys seem to talk about the issue in a very different way. And um, until I met Adam, so Adam and I are friends from Philadelphia, I sort of didn't know there was a community of uh, sort of left-wing groups uh, suing, to, suing for housing deregulation on sort of affordable housing basis. Um, so uh, I guess my question is, one, why uh, are there these sort of two camps? Why isn't this sort of just one movement? And two, what can we do to have you guys sort of be sort of 
you know, working off the same playbook rather than sort of arguing about, about people even though you seem to not actually disagree about any of the policy issues. I do think we often, I mean, I do think there is a history of getting caught up in uh, things like inclusionary zoning where we do have some disagreement. I mean, my, one of my mentors, Bob Ellickson, who is uh, probably familiar to a lot, a lot, of, a lot of you at Cato as, uh, as a, a libertarian, I mean, you know, he's, he's focused a lot of writing on this and I, I very much disagree with him, although I've also learned a ton from him. I mean, uh, I think there's been slowly this, this sort of mountain of, you know, the, 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 what, what Randall showed, the sort of the, the broad difference between uh, these, these markets where things have just gotten totally out of control uh, uh, and, 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 and places where basically most people can afford housing has been building. And, you know, to the degree that there's been dialogue, I think it's been around the margins as opposed to around the, 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 the broad central area in which we agree. And I, I, I think, you know, part of it is uh, that is, is the way we talk about these things and we're coming at these from different perspectives. And I really hope that this can be the start of, uh, of trying to work together more on these issues, because I do think on very big, important, central parts of this uh, where we are in agreement. Well, I'd like to work together, but I am hearing some policy disagreements. I said that we should get rid of zoning and get rid of planning and get rid of all this regulation. And what I heard back was, well, we can't do that, so we need to have some second best solutions. The problem is that the second best solutions are gonna be driven by what whoever's writing those solutions thinks the way cities work. For example, Matt keeps talking about the difficulty of getting from outer suburbs to downtown jobs. Well, most people in outer suburbs never go downtown. Only 8% of all jobs in the United States are located in central city downtowns. Most people in the suburbs work in the suburbs. So there's the problem that it might be difficult to get from outer suburbs to downtown jobs is irrelevant. But if we don't understand that, then we're going to come up with the wrong policy, policy solutions when we try to come up with... You're saying the, the fact solutions. that it's difficult to get from the outer suburbs to downtown is irrelevant because, in part, due to its difficulty, nobody does it? Well, <laughs> there seems to be an optimal density in an automobile-oriented society, and you get above that density and there's too much congestion and people don't, uh, don't like to go there. And that density seems to be, most downtowns are already denser than that, and so we have to subsidize transit and things like that to support those downtown jobs. But, but the point is that uh, unless we really, really understand how cities work, whatever second best solutions we come up with are likely to be wrong. And I don't think anybody does understand how cities work. Uh, as somebody once said about something else, uh, Cities are not only more complicated than we do understand, they're more complicated than we can understand. And so we shouldn't try to come up with regulations or policies, even in, as a second best solution. We should instead try to get rid of the regulation we have now and figure out ways of, of making them work without that regulation. I, I, think, I think Randall has, has nicely illustrated what, what the, the issue is. And it's that you know, we, we talk about the regulations and say, maybe we're agnostic about the outcome after we get rid of the regulations, but in fact there is, I think, a differing view of the value of different kinds of development. Uh, and that view in some cases is cultural, in some cases is uh, more rooted in economics. Um, but there is the sense, I think, at least among Matt and I, that um, we have dense cities for 
and economic reasons, certainly, um, that they arise, uh, the private markets create them uh, when unobstructed uh, for good economic reasons. Uh, I don't know if that's Randall's view on the economics of it, or, 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 but it seems, I think, we seem to detect a, an objection to uh, central cities based, rooted in something, rooted in, in some value system. And, and that, I think, ends up being pretty important when you're having these kinds of discussions. Um, you know, I think that the argument that second best is never going to be good enough, and so uh, I'm not sure what the alternative would be, isn't going to hold water. That in general, when you have a lot of different onerous restrictions, uh, working to get rid of them um, in sort of a systematic way and understanding what the problem is and moving towards the right solution, I mean, yeah, you might find yourself in a cul-de-sac that's unhelpful at some points, but in general, that's a good thing to do. That if we think, you know, uh, that, uh, that that there's a problem, we should try to fix it. Um, and even if we aren't going to find the ideal uh, set of rules or the ideal density, which I think is, is, is it's totally fruitless to try to figure out what that is, that, that we should just do our best to, to, to let markets work. I, I, think, I don't think we're ever going to agree on everything or close to everything, but I think that, I think as Cato has admirably done in other areas, uh, you know, I think that there are important areas in which if we actually tried to work together, we could accomplish something, while also also continuing to disagree about important other areas. So, um, I think we have time for about two more questions. We've got a hand right here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Rick Ryback. I'm with Just Economics. Uh, I believe Euclidean zoning came into being, what, the 1920s, am I roughly correct? 19-teens, actually, there were some zoning codes written in the 1900s. Right. Um, but we had affordable housing problems in this country long before that. So my question is, if we get rid of regulation, uh, I'm not sure, and, and I'm not disagreeing that, that there's, I agree that there are some regulations that we should get rid of because they are getting in the way. But one of the things that I don't think we have addressed is the problems of land ownership and land speculation. And in the, the major cities, before zoning occurred, before there was the infrastructure, both rail and roads, to create suburbia, which was used basically as a way to flee uh, the stranglehold that urban uh, land speculators put people under, there was the, the market didn't solve the housing affordability problem. Uh, and, and thus, we subsidized uh, rail and highway infrastructure for the suburbs so people could flee to more affordable uh, agricultural land. But I think we have to address the fundamental problem of land speculation. And I'm wondering about your thoughts on that. I don't think we really had major housing affordability problems in the 19th century. What we did have in, in a few places were uh, high-density factories and workers who had no transportation other than feet to get to the factories. And so they had to live in very high density. And those high densities were uncomfortable and often unsanitary. And uh, if, if we didn't have those high density factories, if we didn't have expensive transportation as being the only transportation options other than pedestrians, uh, 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 we wouldn't have had those problems. When Henry Ford developed the moving assembly line uh, to make his Model T Fords, he did two things. First of all, he made uh, automobiles affordable to most people. And second of all, he moved factories out into the suburbs because you couldn't have a moving assembly line in the central city. It took too much land. So they moved out to the suburbs, and that moved housing out to the suburbs. Housing followed the factories. We tend to think it's the other way around. So 
we didn't, except for in New York City and a few other places with those high density factories, we didn't really have housing affordability problems. Uh, and I think those prob the problems that we did have in those days were solved by the moving assembly line. I think, you know, something that's really important is the way uh, our system of property taxation works. And I think that, um, you know, and obviously it works very, very differently in different parts of the country. But uh, the, of course, any system of, of, of tax uh, impacts market decisions and market choices. And in some places we tax, uh, you know, improvements much higher than land. In some places we tax land much higher than improvements and that has a significant impact on uh, the choices that people make about uh, development. Because if you tax improvements more heavily than land, then uh, you end up in a system in which uh, it becomes much more uh, economically beneficial to speculate. Uh, if you tax land uh, uh, higher than improvements, then it really doesn't matter what you put on it, and, 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 and speculation loses uh, some of its appeal. So I think, you know, I agree that it's not all about uh, at least the zone, zoning part of regulation. We also have to look at other things like tax systems. I, I think, you know, I, I think it's right to say that there weren't uh, affordability issues outside of a few cities, anything like we've got now um, uh, before the zoning. I, I think that um, the speculation issue is an interesting one and, and there's been research done on the bubble that we just had. Uh, and I think one thing that turns up is that uh, when you have a really fast uh, price response to increased demand because you have these supply restrictions, um, that, that tends to generate bubbles. Um, you know, prices go up, uh, that causes credit conditions to ease so people can borrow more and it fuels this bubble that eventually pops. And so the tighter supply restrictions are, um, the more you're gonna see these big fluctuations in prices um, and, 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 and sort of expanded credit that goes along with it. So I, I think looser supply is one solution to that problem. You know, and then you also need to talk about the finance side. And, you know, we, we look at Texas as being a, a very low regulation state, but obviously a lot of the financial rules they adopted after property busts in the 80s um, seem to have influenced the way that the most recent national property boom played out. And certainly um, loose supply was one thing that kept prices low. But I also think that if you compare it to um, other places, tighter restrictions on, on financing um, played a role. So that's something to consider. You know, to, to tie that in a, a little bit with, with Tim's previous question about uh, policy disagreements, uh, you know, I do think one at least difference in perspective between, between Randall and myself is that, uh, to me, it seems that um, objective scarcity of, of certain kinds of land, uh, as you're pointing to in, in speculation, remains an issue of some concern. I don't think the fact that automobiles exist changes the fact that if you, if you look at Southern California, um, there's a real difference between living in Santa Monica near the beach and living in the Inland Empire. Um, the, the weather is totally different. The um, existence of the beach is totally different. Uh, your access to labor markets is, is different. Um, and so, uh, you know, I mean, I think in a, in a broad sense, we're on the same page that the thing is that you, you have to um, not have rules that prevent people from building what there's market demand for. Uh, but since it's not only a question of there's second best policy alternatives, there's also transportation policy issues involved, there's taxation issues involved. And so I think that, uh, you know, my view is that that land still matters and that um, building is fantastic because building, you know, steel um, and cars, both, uh, allow us to overcome land scarcities that, that once upon a time might have been a bigger problem. Um, uh, but that there are 
because transportation is part of the solution to land scarcity, you get into a, a whole set of other policy questions on which there may be sort of bigger disagreements about what kind of infrastructure we need and, and for what purposes. Um, I think we have time for, yeah, one last question. Um, I think I see a hand in the back. Or we have a the hand corner, right there. The corner? No. Got one right there. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't see one. Okay. I, thank you, Mr. O'Toole. I'm one of your, your DC fans, so always glad to, to, uh, to see your presentations, partially because of the great pictures that you have of Portland and partially because of your <laughs> ties. I always like your ties. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you what your impressions of the DC uh, density issue is. Uh, people have suggested that perhaps we should um, change the rules about how tall our buildings should be here. To partially to allow for more affordable housing because many people are wanting to, to move to DC. We've got traffic problems that are almost as bad as LA and, and Houston. So do you feel that, and this is for everyone in the, in the panel, do you feel that we should reconsider these height restrictions in deference to the concern about the view of the Capitol and the monuments, et cetera, uh, to accommodate people, number one, who need housing, we have a big housing problem here, as you can tell. Uh, just walk around at night and look at the park benches, they're full of people that obviously need places to stay. But the second thing is, is the market is becoming so expensive here. We have typical uh, a building right next door. Average condo runs around $600,000, $700,000. So I think most of us really can't afford that. So my question is, can we, can we get more uh, density if we raise the buildings and is it worth it? Well, this is where uh, I think the policy questions come in on density. I think we've got Maryland, which has all these restrictions on supposedly protecting agricultural land. We have Loudoun County and other counties in Virginia that have zoned most, most of their land for 20-acre lot sizes and other large lot sizes. Those have restricted the ability of people to live in, in single-family, to build new single-family homes in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And so it's created a pressure for more density in Washington, D.C., but if you didn't have those suburban restrictions, you wouldn't have that pressure for density in Washington, D.C. So I'd say let's get rid of the suburban restrictions and then see if there really is a demand for high-density, high-rise in, in Washington. Uh, if there really was a demand, there's a lot of three-story buildings that could be redeveloped to be six and sto seven stories if, if you wanted to. Well, but uh, you're but, not allowed to. Uh, yeah, that's, you should try to do that. I, I really, if, you, if you can make it happen, then uh, that would be a great profit opportunity. Well, uh, I, I've seen uh, streets of row houses here where every other house has been replaced by a six-story building. Every other three-story row house has been replaced by a six-story building. So obviously you can do it in some places. Which, which street was that on? Uh, I think it was Wisconsin. Oh, yeah, there's, there's no NIMBYism in Wisconsin <laughs> Avenue. I actually took a picture I, I, of it. I'll show you. I, I, think, I think that the, the argument that um, it is restrictions on the fringe of the metro area that are driving demand in the core uh, simply doesn't uh, hold water when you actually look at sort of the, the premiums that you can pay in, in different places. Um, I mean, if that were true, then we would expect uh, prices in a place like Prince William County to be extraordinarily high, to be well above construction costs, more above construction costs than we see in the center. And that's, yeah. that's not, in fact, what we observe. Um, I think if you, uh, you know, you have to look again at, at, at sort of the premium that's not being seized upon by private developers. Um, you can clearly build much taller. Other cities manage to do it somehow um, than 13 stories uh, and find it profitable 
profitable to do so. And so um, I, I don't think there's any question there would be demand for those things. The, the question for Washingtonians to answer is essentially what is the value that they place on these views, this sort of European feel that they talk about. Surely there is some positive value. I don't dispute that. Um, but what is it worth? Is it worth um, driving out uh, lots of middle-income people? Is it worth uh, reducing job creation in the metro area? Is it, re is it worth increasing congestion and, and the length of commutes? Um, you know, I, I think if you tot up the, the costs and benefits, it seems pretty clear to me that uh, most people um, would prefer to see a little more height uh, and 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 you know and, and take that trade off, but um, that's why I think it's important to come to talk about the institutions. Clearly, this is not something the council alone can decide. C Congress has to weigh in, uh, and even if they did, there would be a lot of sort of focus pressure groups that have a lot of authority that would be able to override these decisions. So, um, as yeah, I think you know, I think get rid of the 20 acre zoning in Loudoun County and get rid of the heights, and and we'll just see how it all works out. There's also here, I mean, a, an important commercial real estate. Uh, you know, aspect to it. Um, if if you look at the, the the height act limit, I mean, we're primarily talking about the height of office buildings, not not of houses. Um, I would be all for having having uh, more single family homes in Montgomery County. Um, I think the the demand for um, office space, uh, which is proximate to the institutions of government, uh, is clear. This is the second most expensive office market uh, in the country. It, it's also clear that the, the United States Capitol is like in a specific place. Um, that the Cato Institute is in downtown. Washington for the same reason that the Center for American Progress and the Urban Institute and all the other think tanks are, um, and that um, it's, it's very, very expensive here and I think extremely costly to, to the city that the Congress does not let uh, more employment uh, sort of focus here, which is separate from the housing issue. We, we have this extraordinary debate going on in the city about how you know, should we give subsidies to these startup technology companies because um, we'd really like to diversify our economy. Uh, and it, it's just absurd because, I mean, clearly the issue is that it's incredibly expensive yeah. if you're, you know, if you're trying to start a company uh, to obtain real estate. And then if you find some cheap real estate, probably it's zoned for residential and you can't, can't uh, use it for your business. So this is, it's, it's, it is absolutely an issue of, of, uh, of employment diversity and things like that as well as just about housing affordability. Okay, I think we'll wrap up right there. Uh, thank you all for participating. Uh, we have lunch upstairs. It's held on the second level. You can either walk up the spiral staircase or take the elevator. And restrooms are also on the second floor on your way to lunch. So thank you very much. Um, thank you, the panel.